Slash Insiders, welcome. Today I'm interviewing David Keynes. He's the founder of Well Prepped and he's got quite an exciting story. He, just like every one of us, started his business, but he also did that while having a full-time job. So he managed to build his MVP while working 9 to 5 and now is working on scaling that. And he went through a lot of stages such as trying to hire the right team, building it, marketing, validating. Just have a taste of this small 15 seconds of this episode. And then I went through the process of vetting a bunch of teams and I looked overseas and I looked domestically and didn't, I didn't know what I didn't know, but I, I interviewed a bunch of teams and seemed to me that if, at least back then, if I wanted to go offshore, I would have had to have the skill set of a project manager mm-hmm. to be able to coordinate everything. Whether that's right or wrong, I don't know, but I knew that wasn't one of my skill sets. That's just a small piece of the interview you're about to hear right now. So that sounds exciting. Let's get down to it and listen to the full episode. This episode is sponsored by the SaaS Insiders Studio. We help SaaS founders build their minimum viable products, MVPs, launch quickly, find a product market fit, and grow from there. SaaS Insiders Studio works with non-technical founders that are on the pre-seed or seed stage to help them execute on their product vision. To learn more, go to my LinkedIn profile that you can find in the description to this episode and shoot me a direct message there. All right, let's jump straight into today's episode. SaaS Insiders, welcome to this episode of our show. Today with me, I have David Keynes. He's a founder of Well Prepped, and today he's going to be sharing his story of how he went from just having a full-time job into now transitioning into being a founder of SaaS business and what we can learn from this journey as well. With that said, David, thank you for coming to the show. Vlad, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. For those SaaS insiders who might not know you yet, could you give a couple minute introduction of who's David Keynes, where you're coming from and what you're working on right now? Sure. So I am a full-time practicing urologist. Urologists are doctors who operate on the urinary tract, kidney, bladder, prostate, etc. Well known for treating kidney stones, prostate cancer, things like that. I'm working on Well Prepped, which is a productivity tool for doctors so that they don't have to repeat themselves over and over as much and they can run their clinic more efficiently. It's trying to address the pain of burnout amongst physicians around the country, in the United States, around the world, actually. The brief 1,000-foot flyover of my life, I was born in South Africa originally, moved as a very young baby to Canada and then New York. I spent most of my uh, childhood growing up in the New York area and stayed in the Northeast, and I'm now in the Boston area. Uh, I have a wife and five kids, actually. So very full life that I decided to add on this extra layer of being a SaaS founder is actually means that I might be a bit of a lunatic. <laughs> but that's the, uh, that's the overview of who I am. Interesting. Interesting. So you said it is a SaaS for doctors and you being a doctor means like you're also close to this pain. You're probably not a physician, like you said, you're a urologist, right? But still it's, it's related to, to, like, to the industry you're working in. Yeah, yeah. I felt the pain personally 
directly in my practice as a, as a practicing surgeon. I know there may be a very small violin playing for surgeons who are disgruntled with their jobs, but nevertheless, you know, I, I felt the pain personally of being face-to-face -face in an exam room with a patient, finding myself explaining the same concepts over and over and over and over and over again and feeling disconnected. You know, one, one of the things we love as doctors is making a connection with another human being and having really meaningful interaction. And if I'm explaining, for example, kidney stones from a very basic level, and I've given that explanation 2,000 times, you know, can lead to a feeling of disconnect and, uh, and burnout. That is, that is a really interesting problem to solve. Uh, one thing that SaaS insiders think and I think it'll be interesting for you to elaborate is when you're starting your SaaS journey, right? When you're, when you're looking for, do I want to make it a side hustle? Or do I want to go all in? Almost all of the advice on the internet is you should go all in because if it's a side hustle, stay a side hustle forever. And for most people, it is like this. For most people, when they do something on the side, a couple hours per day, they usually don't take it much seriously. So we really rarely see people actually pushing through it and getting something meaningful from something they combine with their full-time job. It's really interesting for me because for other founders as well, we talked a bit of a bit of it off air that you actually combine having your SaaS and having a job. Would you share a little bit like almost like how is that possible? Because almost all of the stories that we hear from founders. They either need to switch it full-time, basically from the beginning, or they never really get to, to traction, never really start getting some results from it. Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think, you know, to be honest with you, sometimes when you look back at a story, it, it looks like a, it was all calculated and it's a straight line. But when you go through it, it it's not exactly that way. So I'll, I'll just start by saying that a lot of this was out of necessity. So first of all, as I mentioned, I have a big family and I have to support the family and, and I couldn't have just stopped working and start the SaaS. I'm also not a technical founder. So that also would have been very difficult. I couldn't have done the, the heavy lift of creating it and use my time as leverage. I, I didn't have that capability. So I would have had to stop my job, hire a team and probably would not have been able to keep paying my bills. So so some of it was out of necessity. And the, and the second aspect was, you know, I didn't start off saying to myself, I'm going to start a company around this. It kind of happened step by step where just going along my primary job made, made the most sense. So let me, let me give you an example, or I'll tell you exactly how it happened. So I'm in this scenario of feeling like something in my workflow needs to change. And so I started having my secretaries send out PDFs on, for example, I see a lot of prostate cancer and there's a PDF booklet explaining the basics of prostate cancer, which is fantastic. I started having her email that to patients before they showed up. The visits were so much better. Then I recorded a video on Loom of myself giving a couple of other explanations and I sent those and the visits with those patients were even better. And then I made a simple Linktree page, although it was, a, it was a separate company called Shorby, I used leveraged the link in bio arena in order to make this into a very simple web page with buttons on it. And I was just trying to make my secretary's life easier because she could just share one URL instead of, you know, the 20 that I had collected. So 
that became the sort of prototype. It was just leveraging some third-party software in order to accomplish what I wanted. Again, I was only just trying to help my own workflow, not wanting to start a company. And it had such a big impact that then I took that same model and I made prototype pages for 10 other doctors just to see, like, was this just me or would this help other people? And those doctors were raving about it. In fact, a couple of them reprinted their business cards with the QR code for their collection of you know, links because it, it was so much a part of their workflow that, that they, were, they were voting with actually reprinting their business cards. It was only at that point that I said, all right, there's a business idea here. I have to spread this around because these doctors were, they were so bullish on this idea that they were like, oh my God, this is, this has improved my, my clinic. So it evolved when it evolves piecemeal like that, there was, you know, it was the obvious solution for me to just keep working on it while I, while keeping a full-time job. It really sounds like your job actually was almost like a polygon for testing those things. It was like, it fits so perfectly because it's for your workflow and the people around you. So it's, it even like it sounds like it, it even made sense to work because you could you could actually test those things like in real life on your example. Yeah, except for one thing. As soon as I the initially was just scratching my itch and I was sending patients to these resources anyway. Once I realized that it may have potential outside of just me, I sort of stopped testing it in my own workplace to uh, so that there would be no conflict of interest only tested it with outside doctors because, you know, I didn't want to mix the two endeavors. So uh, my feedback from then became primarily from other doctors using it. But I see what you mean. Certainly was a, I was a content expert for sure in, in this problem. One thing, David, you've mentioned is you're not a technical founder, right? I mean, you don't, you don't come from engineering background. And majority of SaaS founders these days at least in our SaaS and service audience, are not technical as well. And when you cannot contribute with technology, with solutions, you need to contribute with marketing and with capital, right? So how did you, how did you organize the workflow, your company, so that the product was built? How did you go about hiring talent? Was it an outsourcing model, in-house model? Could you elaborate, like, how did you approach getting that to market? Because people are wondering all the time. Sure. Yeah, sure. I have to tell you, I'm not making this up because I'm on a podcast right now. I'm telling you, the next thing I did was I consumed hundreds of hours of podcasts in, involving SaaS entrepreneurship at 2x speed for weeks. So, you know, <laughs> Rob Walling's podcast, Startups for the Rest of Us, I mean, hundreds of hours uh, and few others. And so, because I didn't even have the language to understand what SaaS meant and what the building blocks were. And so I must have listened to hundreds of stories, you know, which is, makes me so excited to, to be telling my story right now because I know that it helped me to hear other people's stories. But that's the first thing I did. And that's what I started to understand about testing before you build anything and what marketing was gonna be involved. I learned enough web design to be dangerous and made my own website created a wait list uh, with MailChimp and used Zapier in order to create a whole bunch of workflows for myself. You know, so I was certainly non-technical, but I, I, I am able to learn quickly and I am very interested in learning new things. And so 
I was able to build at least the shell of a building block of something by myself. And then I went through the process of vetting a bunch of teams. And I looked overseas and I looked domestically and didn't, I didn't know what I didn't know, but I, I interviewed a bunch of teams and seemed to me that if, at least back then, if I wanted to go offshore, I would have had to have the skill set of a project manager mm-hmm. to be able to coordinate everything. And whether that's right or wrong, I don't know. But I knew that wasn't one of my skill sets. And I ended up settling on an agency domestically in the U.S. who I hired and, um, and they worked on creating version one. As you know, it's never done, but we'll call it version one uh, that's now out, out in the wild. So that was my first foray into building, building well prepped. It really makes me smile when you say version one, but you know, it's never done. Right? We yeah. always have, as a founders, it's always like one more feature. Okay, yeah, one, one more, more feature. feature. One more and it's going to be fine. No, no, one yeah. more. <laughs> Before right. you know it, you build this elephant that you want to release, but it's just... Yeah, it's, it's just... like a giant continuous work in progress. I mean, it, there's no end to it. But yeah, so the team was in Boise, Idaho, and they did a great job. But you know, the other thing I'll say is at that point, I had a prototype, but it wasn't like I could spec out something specifically and say, build this. Hmm. And if if I could have done that, I think I could have gone to a, an offshore team and in a, in a cost-effective way. But I knew that I needed, I needed help, not just building something, but iterating. I needed a team that was going to help me interview users and get feedback and start with an idea and change it and go back to the drawing board. And then, and so in the first year, there was a lot of back and forth and we thought this was going to work and it didn't work. And, you know, Zoom recording people onboarding and realizing that things we thought were obvious were not obvious to the users and going back to the drawing board. And so when I reflect back on that year, I think that really was necessary because I didn't have the skill set to do that on my own. What kind of advice can you give to founders who are in a similar situation? And you know, we kind of evolved from that position. But if I'm a Sassan Sari who's listening to this and just feels like I just need someone to help me, you know, get this sorted. I'm, I'm not sure how, how I'll iterate on my product. Like now from your, from your view of your current, David, like what kind of steps did you, did you take to, to break through that wall? Well, from what stage specifically, from the idea stage or further along? Well, I guess I guess the situation where you kind of, you cannot really scope out what you're trying to achieve. Like you have the vision, just like you described, right? You know the problem, but just how do we package this into something meaningful that we can deliver and, and learn from the marketplace? That's a great question. It's often talked about, but very hard to do when people say like, get the crappiest basic version together that proves the concept and show it to people early. Like that's the prevailing advice. It's so hard to actually get yourself to do it, but I think I really did do that. I mean, the, you know, the, the prototype that I did to borrow on third-party software that had no login capability, I had to build the pages for the early users. They couldn't edit it themselves. They had to email me the changes. I had to manually do it myself. If an, if one of their colleagues wanted a page, I would say, oh yeah, we can do that. And I was manually copying and pasting every resource into this makeshift thing. And then actually got 
the first paying users, I didn't mention that before, the first paying users off the prototype, not even the thing. And I'd heard that advice before I did that. And very scary to approach somebody and ask them to open their wallet on the thing that you know is just like the most basic, crappiest version of what you actually envision. But thank God I did that because it gave me the courage when they said yes, gave me the courage, you know, I'm bootstrapping this and, you know, putting a lot of money at risk. And so it gave me more courage to think, all right, like this is not a complete gamble. Somebody paid for it. I'm not a complete idiot. Maybe, or maybe, I'll, maybe it'll crash and burn anyway. But, you know, you need, you need to do something like that, whether it's a Notion database or, an ex, you know, a Google Sheet or with a Zapier thing going on in the background, some crappy cobbled together thing, especially for non-technical founders. All that stuff is really within reach. It is frightening to ask the first paying user to open up their wallet, even when, you know, especially when they're looking at a, something that you've cobbled together that is nowhere near what you imagine the final product would be. But thank God I did that because, you know, I had to protect myself on the downside and you need that kind of evidence in order to move forward and actually fork over the money for development. I mean, you're de-risking the process to some degree. Um, so even for a non-technical person like me, whether it's like a clickable Figma prototype or a Zapier connection to a Google Sheet or a Notion or something, I mean, there's ways to get the core product idea in front of people before you take the next step. Does that kind of resonate with you as well? I think, I think there's a saying that says, lousy success is better than the perfect failure. And I think it describes it that you want to prove it first. You want to get, give me, give me some signs that I'm not going in the opposite direction. Give me some people who can say yes with their wallet. And that will give me, right? It's almost like if we knew ahead of time that we'll get, we'll get a high chance of success, we wouldn't be so anxious to invest whatever amount it is, whatever amount of time, energy, and resources, right? But that's, it's this thing when we need to get validation of what we're doing. And that's what usually keeps people from... Exactly. There. Another way of saying that, and I was given this advice is, if you, you need to fail fast. If it's going to fail, it should fail quickly. Um, so, so I did take that to heart. Not to say that each decision is easy in a forward-looking fashion. In fact, you know, every decision is very muddy. I feel like you, you're just acting at every point with your best guess at what the way forward is, you know, an educated guess. So far in the journey, their decisions have never been like, you know, flashing neon signs, like obvious. It's like, I think this is the right way to go. Interesting. So you've got a few users, you said, from basically like assembling a prototype of how it might look like, but actually doing the backend yourself. Yeah, the back end was all, you know, me copying and pasting resources into, <laughs> into this prototype. They would email me a change they want to make. I would say, sure, no problem. And then I, you know, feverishly, you know, copy and paste on the back end. It was, it was a lot of manual work, you know, but, but, but uh, you know, but it's that, resourceful, uh, right? That, that's, that's what, what, what different between resourceful people and people it's, you're not lacking resources, you're lacking resourcefulness. The person who knows what to be achieved, they'll figure out a way just like you did. You might not have the resources and the team to do that, but you figured out other way. It takes your time, but needs to prove the model first. Yeah, I mean, there was no, you know, I guess I've heard founders described as people who generally are biased towards action. And, and I think, you know, I just 
have a, a sort of proclivity to just do it. I mean, if, if a doctor said, hey, my friend wants one of these pages, can you do it? And I knew it was like hours of copy pasting. So yeah, absolutely. And by the next day, I it would be done. I would have to wake up at five in the morning to get it done before my full-time job. But the other thing that that did was kept, kept me very close to the end user. Like a, a couple of friends said, you know, you should hire a VA in the Philippines. You know, this stuff is like, you shouldn't be doing this copy paste. If you can describe to somebody how to do it in a Loom video, you should you should pawn that off to a VA. And maybe I should have, but this kind of stuff kept me so close to the users that I feel like I learned, a, kept that close to the first 200 people who have onboarded. And so, you know, when they say do things that don't scale, let, let me tell you a couple of things that I did that did not do not scale. So once we had the, the product that was actually developed by a real team of programmers, as soon as somebody onboarded, I was manually emailing each person. And the way that I knew that somebody onboarded was I got CC'd the verification email from onboarding. Just like the most low budget way of figuring out that I had a new user was I get that email. That, oh, somebody needed an email verification. I wonder who this is. And I would check on their page that they'd made, recorded a Loom video of me sort of congratulating them on arriving to this thing and my comments about their page and, and the resources that they had chosen for their patients and encouraging them to keep going. And that was, I mean, I probably sent 80 or 90 personalized Loom videos to those users. And I just know if I received something like that, I would be so happy that somebody cared and, you know, it wasn't a, an act. I really was genuinely interested in, in hoping that they succeeded. So it was easy to do it, but it was very time consuming and, you know, definitely not scalable. But people responded sort of like shocked that they had gotten this, this video. And I think it made them feel committed to giving it their best shot at, at building out their their pages that they would show patients and stuff like that. And so, and it encouraged people to be person. I didn't hire anybody for support. There's still nobody for support except me. So any of the questions that come up, they go right to me, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that differently looking back because I, I know so much about what goes wrong with the product. I know so much about what the users care about. And it would have been easy for me to say, Hey, you know, I'm a doctor. I'm one of those users. I know everything that they're thinking, but they frequently surprise me. They complain about things that don't bother me, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And one thing we talked about on the air is you're actually moving towards having an investment in company, meaning having a round to continue growing the company. What do you think, what do you think will need to be changed to be investable in your process? Do you think that this like unscalable things need to be readjusted? Or like what's your take? Or what is What's the difference well prepped will be to, to be ready for investment? Yeah, so you're right. I mean, all, all the manual processes that I am doing need to be automated. We're working on that now uh, so that the same kind of... So we need to get the users to the aha moment. And for well prepped, that aha moment is they've shown their page to the patient. They show up to the visit. That visit is awesome and better than the doctors used to, okay? 
that's the aha moment. In order for me to get there, the doctor has to do a lot of work. They got to decide they want to use this, go through onboarding, add some detail to their pages, verify that the content is correct, add their own content. Then they need to somehow build it into their workflow. They need to tell their secretary to send it to the patient. There's a lot that needs to happen. We need um, manual, not manual, but automatic processes that nudge the early user in a drip sequence to get them to that moment. So we're making moves in the works to make that happen. The app itself, you know, we mentioned is never done. The infrastructure of the app needs to continue to be built up so that, you know, all the usual things, internal testing is present and et cetera, et cetera. So the app needs to be continued to be made more robust. Um, we do have some unfair advantages though. And one of the, and I would acknowledge that one of the unfair advantages is that the users are doctors who may have additional disposable income. And many of them have already raised their hands and said, hey, if you, if you raise around, I would like to invest. And that's been one of the most satisfying aspects of this so far is that those are the users. So users have been so delighted by this that they're going a step further and saying, hey, uh, you know, here's my vote of confidence. But I would, I would acknowledge that not all founders have user bases that are, um, make, a, make a healthy living. So, you know. I agree, but it's, it's still yeah. phenomenal, right? It's not just enough to, to be serving the wealthy audience to make them invest. You need to solve a great problem of such an extent that they truly believe this is going to be a growing venture that they believe other people also want it, not just them. Right. So it's, it's, it it tells, it tells about size of a problem to your solving. So that's, that's, that's really cool. Appreciate that. What kind of, what kind of plan do you see for well-prepped? Because a lot of founders, they're curious, like, so I raised this round, I get some, some resources. What do I do next? Right. Where do I invest this? So now I have a bit more freedom, a bit more resources to spend, but I also want to be very wise of what I'm doing with this because we're not raising money just to burn it, right? We want to use it wisely. What do you think you would be focusing on with well-prepped once you have the capital to work with? Yeah, so the, uh, I want to keep the team small because I one of the things that I love about you know, going on this journey is you know, everywhere I've ever worked has been a very well-established places and established hospitals and things move very slowly. And it's incredible to be working on something where you decide something's going to happen and it just happens. So I want to keep the team small, but I do have to start paying the team a salary. So there's no question that some of the funds will go there. A lot of them is going to go into product. The majority is going to go into product development because again, it's, it's, it's a proof of concept stage product. Now it's great, but it's just, there's so many more layers that need to be put into it until I'd consider it to be a full product. It's not a full product yet. Um, and so I, the lion's share is going to go into that. Marketing is going to be part of it because I'm beyond the point of wondering if there's other doctors out there who would find this useful. Now, just a question of finding those people and putting this in front of them in a way that catches their attention. And so marketing is the other piece. That's how I see it. What I'm really encouraged by is, you know, when you have something like this, you always wonder, like, what's the viral coefficient? What's the, what's the chance that somebody tells someone else? So far, people tend to tell their friends, their colleagues, hey, I've got this thing, like, you should try it. 
I don't exactly know what, what the viral coefficient is yet, but you know, that's another benefit of staying close to the users. Every single one I say, hey, how'd you find about this? Nine times out of 10, they say, oh, my friend is so-and-so and they're using it. So yeah, I got off on a bit of a tangent there, but that that's where I where I see um, you know the next phase of WellPrep. Well, I mean, wait till you add a referral program on top of that. For example, they right. refer someone, they right. get one month free, right? That's, that's going to right. the level. Right, so. right. You know, there's one one other thing that I just want to mention because part of the advantage is that I'm a doctor and I don't know anything about SaaS, or at least I didn't when I started. Is that when I heard advice, I really like paid attention to it. So, you know, I hear people say you should really niche down. And for me, that meant I was only going to start with doctors who are in the exact same specialty as me, because that's what I know the best. So we did do that. We focused just on urologists and to prove it out. And so when you say, what's the next phase for well prep, we're going to start moving into other verticals, which means other, other specialties, other, other types of doctors. One question, David, that I, I love to ask because we really learn a lot from it is if you were to go back when you started with well prep, what do you think are the things or the strategies and mindset that changed from that moment that you would love probably to have in the beginning? Like what are some of the learning experiences, something you would just love to know? Like, oh, only if I knew this when I, when I started with my SaaS. What kind of those things do you have in mind from your experience right now? I wish... Well, there is some advice that I didn't follow well that I really wish in retrospect that I had. And when I told you we started off free because we wanted to create a buzz and now we're charging, we're starting to charge. I went against advice, some advice that people were giving. They said, you know, just charge from the start. And I didn't do that. And I think, I mean, I, I did for a few early users. I told you I tested pricing when I had the prototype. But, but I didn't continue that. I, if I could go back, I would start charging from the very beginning. And, and I didn't do that out of fear and a feeling of discomfort. Like my skill set is having a vision for this idea. My skill set is in having the pain myself. My skill set is in, you know, really hustling and getting stuff done and learning new things. But selling stuff to people is not a skill set of mine. And I start to feel very apologetic when I, you know, we're sorry, we're going to start charging. <laughs> and, you know, so if I could go back and give myself a pep talk, it would be, listen, you're solving people's problems. This can't exist for free. It just can't. In, it, in order for it to be a sustainable solution, it, it costs money. You free, you can't host it for people, etc. So and I would tell myself, you know, explain why, explain why it, it costs something and, and, and go for it unapologetically because you're helping people solve a problem and that can't happen for free. Do, do, you, do you think it had some effect on also converting the existing customers? Like you mentioned that you needed to have this like conversation, like, yeah, we're going to start charged about it. Do you think that would be different if it was just like from the beginning, if they were paid users from day one? I think it would be a little bit different because people get used to something being free and then it seems like a different thing to be charging. And, and, and if you're doing it from the beginning, then that's just the way it is. I will say that doctors specifically are not used to paying for their productivity software. They are definitely paying for it, but they don't see, they don't see 
who's writing the check. Whereas creators, for example, are very used to knowing I got to pay such and such for MailChimp and I need such and such for Google Workspace and I need, you know, it's $8 here, $10, $49, $110, you know, they build their business on a series of monthly subscriptions. For doctors, that's unless they're out on their own with their own practices, they don't necessarily see that. So I'm also having to teach, in some cases, this new behavior or, or, or an analogy will be made to something that just doesn't apply, like, for example, but Netflix is only $12 a month, you know? So I'll say, well, you know, when we get a billion users, we'll lower the price for you. So, you know, some of it is educating your own user base. I heard this one horror story of a person actually from my network. They were building the SaaS product, but it was just a tool that they distributed for free. It was a research Chrome extension. So pretty basic, pretty basic extension, but they, but they quickly realized they solved a real problem because they started getting users. And before they yeah. knew it, they had like 1500 users that they're using on a daily basis. Now that's, that's a pretty active audience. Then the question came, well, let's monetize it, right? They couldn't sell $1 per month subscription. They just couldn't. They needed to wow. fight for that to get $1,500 per month because it's 1,500 users, $1 per month, right? And they got so much hate, like you changed, you just want the money. And it's, it really comes from the expectations because when you position something as free, people, people just naturally receive it as something that they can get for free, right? It's so hard to change the behavior, especially if they're used to it, right? Rather than just in the beginning, it's one bucks per month. I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure what you can buy for $1 in US really, or pretty much anywhere. So right, I think right. it also comes from like training this behavior in the beginning. I think you're absolutely right. Fortunately, I'll say as we are converting free users to paid users in batches, thankfully, the majority, far, far over the majority is saying, yes, sure, no problem. We're getting very little pushback, thank goodness. But, you know, I, I would have preferred not to have had to go through this. Now that I know what the cost of cre bringing something like this into the universe, it's substantial. And especially for non-technical founders. So uh, I think, you know, if you're really solving someone's problem and you're passionate about it and your primary goal is to help them, then, you know, paying for something should seem obvious. I pay for tons of apps in my own life that I find useful happily. And so I think that fear was largely unfounded. I think if, if we go a bit deeper in ourselves, oftentimes, for example, for me, oftentimes before I found that it's not in users' head that they are not they not should be paying for this. It's more in my head because it's almost like I have to justify for myself that this is valuable. Because if I see that it's really solving the problem for people, they don't mind paying. It's just a lot of times we ourselves kind of limiting what can be done just because we don't necessarily see that it could be charged for. That's what I found in my observations. Yeah, I think that that's very insightful. I think I agree completely. One of the things before before we wrap up our amazing episode today, what do you think were the most inspiring and educational resources you could recommend to a SaaS founder who is getting started on their journey? Maybe it's an interesting book that, that brought huge progress to your development. Maybe it's an inspirational speaker, mentor, community. If you could name two to three sources, what do you think were the most impactful for you? I'll start with two books. 
the number one book recommendation is April Dunford's Obviously Awesome. That is the book I recommend the most. The second is Crossing the Chasm. I know these are very popular recommendations, but I found them to be very helpful for me. Let me just tell you a little bit more about why. So April Dunford's book, Obviously Awesome, it's never too early to think about positioning. There are many ways that I could have positioned this exact same thing very poorly. Let me give you an example. If I said, doctors, I I have a way for you to make websites. I mean, not compelling at all. And it comes up with this whole bunch of objections that are I don't want to have to defend. I don't need a website. Why do I need a website? So instead, it really is a productivity tool for doctors. because And so thinking about a positioning hypothesis early on was directly out of Abel Dunford's book and changed the way I approached it. And if I had to change my positioning later, it's much more difficult. And I might not have reached the traction that I did without it. Crossing the chasm lets you rethink in a very specific way how any new idea is adopted, where early adopters will flock to you because they nearly imagined that awesome thing that you created, but you could get lulled into a false sense of security, like every new user is going to come to you like that, when really the early majority, the next phase with a huge chasm in between, are people who are much more skeptical who don't really want to hear about all the features. They do feel the pain, but they, they're much more conservative about adopting it. The strategy for explaining a product to those people may be completely different. So those two books were life-changing. I'm very active on Twitter, and the SaaS and founder community on Twitter is amazing. I've sort of inserted myself initially as just a voyeur, just consuming other people's content uh, and then occasionally participating. But I learned so much from, from the Twitter community that I found that invaluable. I already mentioned podcasts, which I consume like absolute crazy person when I, when I find podcasts, I binge every, every single episode. But that's when you really hear people's in-depth stories and learn from their mistakes. And, and every single episode I listen to, I can think of something that, or an idea that pops into my head on how that applies to what I'm doing. So those are the main, the last thing I'll mention is you, I did surround myself with what I would call like a, a pseudo board of advisors. I have a group of mentors who I frequently call on for advice uh, unofficially. These are either friends of mine or people with completely opposite skill sets to me, people who are in finance or who are in venture capital, mm-hmm. who have been generous with their time and I just check in, here's what I'm up to. And they got three or four ideas that are like perfect for the next six months for me to think about. So you need to assemble your own kind of sounding board support group. I think that's been also instrumental in helping me avoid making too many mistakes. I hope you're taking notes of this because there's so many resources here. What would be the best way for our audience or for everyone's listening to connect with you if they want to contribute to what you're doing, maybe seek some advice? You've mentioned Twitter, right? Is one of the places. Yeah, yeah my handle on Twitter is at CanesDavid, C-A-N-E-S-D-A-V-I-D. My DMs are open and you know I would love to chat. It's a pretty easy way to get in touch with me. I'm probably on the well prep website. I, I think I have an email link on the bottom. It's well prepped is a deliberate misspelling. It's W-E-L-L-P-R-E-P-T.com. So I'm pretty easily reachable in, in both of those ways. 
we will put those in the description of the episode so everyone's listening can easily access them not only by by ear but actually just clicking on the link david what do you think would be the final thoughts for our episode today if assassin cyber could take just one big takeaway out of this if it's only one thing one topic one theme they took out what those final words would be my my final parting thought is in the category of finding an idea for SaaS in the first place. I'll tell you, I have come up with dozens of terrible ideas in my life. And the difference with this one is that the idea would not leave me alone. And I mean that, like I could, once I, the idea came to me, I couldn't, I wouldn't shut up about it. I wouldn't stop talking to my wife about it. I wouldn't stop talking to my friends about it. I couldn't stop thinking about it. If you have an idea that won't leave you alone, those are the ones to pursue because it means you, you're wedded to it, you love it, and you have the passion to, uh, to do all those grueling things that won't feel like work because you're, you know, you just, you're consumed and you love the idea. David Keynes, everyone. David, I thank you so much for taking the time to connect with me today. Thank you so much for inviting me. This has been great. Sass Insiders, we'll see you in the next episodes.